Alright, Bizzlecast listeners, welcome back to the Bizzlecast. I have Papa Bizzle back on for another round because we saw another great movie. And while it couldn't be more different in a lot of ways um, from The Martian, which was the movie that I uh, first brought my dad on for and which we loved. And if you listen to it, you know how much we loved it. But there are some similarities, actually, uh, in terms of the human project, if you will, between these two movies. Maybe we'll get to that. I want to talk about this movie, and it's called Spotlight. You've probably seen at least previews for it. It's not quite a wide-release movie, even though it has an all-star cast, including Mark Ruffalo, Rachel McAdams, and Michael Keaton, as well as some great support actors and character actors. Really a a, a great uh, ensemble cast in some ways, even though it's mostly focused around uh, a handful of reporters at the Boston Globe. This is based on a true story that we all know by now, which has come about over the last 15 years, which is the uh, abuse scandals in the Catholic Church involving mostly little boys, but also little girls, which the movie talks about. We'll get back to that. It's pretty much common knowledge now, and, uh, you know... (laughs) What's amazing is um, that even the Pope has embraced this movie. Uh, We'll talk about that later, but before we get started talking about this great movie, Spotlight, which I have to think is going to be a Best Picture nominee, I'm going to introduce my dad. So, Papa Bizzle, how's it feel to be back on after a very successful uh, first appearance? World of the Bizzle, hello. It's great to be back, Um, and really exciting to be talking about this particular movie because it's super important movie and it was beautifully done and I'm glad to have a chance to do a round another round with you about this this film so thanks for having me back oh absolutely great to have you back um you know I mean there were some serious aspects to the Martian um but because it was so fun and such a feel-good movie and was very funny um, you know, the themes were, were somewhat understated in terms of serious themes. With this movie, it's extremely serious, and there's a lot of angles and a lot of dimensions. And uh, we'll talk about the, the many reasons we loved uh, Spotlight, um, but one of them is it's extremely understated. And it, it felt to me um like a procedural in a lot of ways it was sort of like a journalistic procedural yes absolutely you couldn't be more more accurate in that observation i just think that's that that captures it um it, it's very important it's understated it is a procedural it's kind of a combination of of a detective story and a and a newsroom drama and a, and a procedural absolutely and uh <laughs> You know, what's great about this movie is it's extremely subtle, even though it's dealing with very unsubtle themes. Um, You keep waiting for some crazy plot twist, you know, or or some horrible thing to happen on screen or a character to turn out to be a bad guy that you didn't think was a bad guy. But that's not really what it's about. And, And to circle back when I said it was based on a true story, what's so amazing is that... So, you know, we're used to, you know, movies being, quote unquote, based on true stories, right? I mean, but the problem is, just like I complain about needing more, uh, you know, ratings in the film rating system, we need to have more levels of based on a true story, uh, um, you know, qualifications, meaning 
this one says in the opening title. So you normally, when a movie's you know supposedly based on a true story, you find that out via the trailer or the reviews or the written materials or the posters. This one opens with a title card that just says based on a true story. And yet, it's very difficult for me to find anything on the internet that says there was any major reimagining of history here. And as I pointed out, you know, even the Catholic Church is either embracing it or at least not challenging it. Um, there's a great article um, about the movie in Wired or on Wired.com, um, and the headline is "Spotlight isn't a thriller, but it gets the facts right." And it's really refreshing for that to be the case. I, 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 honestly, I, I mean, I, the first thing we did when we left the movie was try and find some articles because you just wanted this story, this particular one, more than you know any other, um, to be true. And it just felt true watching it because it wasn't sensationalized, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It um, that, that's that's it. It was. Uh... You just felt that it wasn't all Hollywooded up, you know, and uh, whether it's um, uh, the way they portrayed Lee uh, Schreiber's character, who was the editor in chief, Martin yes. Barron. Um, you can talk about any of the characters and they were just very real. They weren't all drama up, all Hollywooded up. And it just felt like this was more true history than, than not. I mean, there have been there have been a lot of historically based movies in, in recent uh, the last year or two, and um, you know, Selma, I think, caught a lot, a lot of criticism yes. for how, how they screwed around with LBJ's character. But um, in this, in this movie, I mean, it just seemed kind of straight down the middle. Yeah, um, and in the Wired article, um, it mentions two movies that are similar in terms of being sort of you know journalism thrillers. One of which I you know have seen part of but couldn't get through because it was, you know, kind of scary, which is Zodiac. And the other one I know is like an all-time great classic, and you might be able to speak to this. I've never seen it. I know I should, which is All the President's Men. Yeah, you have to see it. And, uh, you know, but what the Wired article talks about is that as great as President's Men and Zodiac apparently are, you know, the there's a plot thread running that involves the investigators, not just the investigation. You know, McCarthy refers um, lovingly, um, but the director of um, of Spotlight, um, someone McCarthy, I can't remember Tom, his first name. Tom McCarthy. Tom McCarthy refers to all the president's men as a paranoid thriller, and he was not interested in doing that with this movie. Um, he, he wanted the drama to come from the investigation and not the investigators, if that makes sense, and yet... You know, I mean, they they sell the main characters in this movie with very little exposition or even showing us, um, you know, these characters' background. Now, we'll get into the various characters, but it's very hard when when it's a, a totally a procedural drama to make these sorts of characters three-dimensional. I, I don't know if you have any thoughts about that. I mean, they you know, there's little touches about divorces or separations or this or that. But you don't feel like you're dealing with flat characters, even though the focus is never on really the personal lives. It's you know it's it's really stunning. I think the way McCarthy three dimensionalized his ensemble cast of of characters 
with, as you say, this very spare exposition about each one of them. I mean, it's just, I don't know how, how he did it, but you can go down the list and, um, you know, it was like, uh, like little red riding hood on, on feeling the different beds, you know, and that, that one was to this and that one was to that, but this one was just right. Well, what he did with each of the characters was just right. I mean, a little bit about Ruffalo's personal life. That is Mike uh, Resendez, the, uh, the, 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 like the lead uh, reporter. Um, Michael Keaton, you know, we got a little bit about how he is from really a Boston Catholic elite because of where he went to prep school. And that was really important to, to learn uh, about that, that, that he went to, to this elite Catholic prep school. And uh, Rachel McAdams and her her grandmother, who's a uh, you know a, a religious Catholic, and you know you can go and uh, leave Schreiber. You know we needed to know that he, that he's Jewish and a couple things about him. But I mean, it's just these little bits that created the, the, these three dimensional uh, persona, and without going you know in, into soap opera uh, territory. Yeah, I mean, there's really not a single classic thriller moment in the whole movie. Right. You right. know, <laughs> you know, there's there's some points where you know uh, early on you wonder about John Slattery's character, Ben Bradley Jr., who's the assistant managing editor. You wonder is this guy going to be a douche and and find a way to you know pour cold water over this thing or, or, or sabotage it because he's so ambivalent about exposing. Uh, this this burgeoning horror story. You, so you worry about him. And even, even Michael Keaton at the beginning, you wonder whether he's going to have the guts to do what needs to be done. But, you know, there's, like you said, there's just, there, there there's never a, 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 a thriller kind of bad guy moment. Yeah. Uh, you know, there's one minor misdirect in terms of characters in the whole movie where, you know, Michael Keaton, who's all about the story, and we should mention the reason it's called Spotlight is because the Boston Globe for many, many, many decades had what's essentially like a special ops unit, right, yes. of yes. journalists um, in the Woodward style, you know, whose only job was to do investigative reporting. Yeah. And what's great is... You know, we find out pretty early on that Michael Keaton and others involved, not just with Spotlight, but the Boston Globe, had been given information on and off for decades about this story. And his guilt about, you know, waiting until now to run it because of Lee Schreiber. We'll get back to Lee Schreiber. But, you know, that, that guilt is really tearing up Keaton inside. As you mentioned, he comes from the Catholic, you know, the sort of privileged Catholic background. That doesn't turn out to be the reason um, if anything, you know, has to do with feeling guilty about all that. Uh, and, you know, there's a brief misdirect where he doesn't want to run the story. And, you know, I, I mean, p part of this story, first of all, this happened way earlier than I remember, you know, um, it, it takes place in 2001, 2002, the investigation is interrupted by 9-11. And what's so crazy is, and maybe this is just us being able to have perspective about 9-11, is that by the time 9-11 happens, like two-thirds through the movie, you are so invested in this case, you're mad when they take them off the story to do 9-11 coverage. Mm -hmm. um, that's how I felt, at least. I'm not trying to be offensive here, but they had plenty of reporters to do it, and 
you know, what's great is between Lee Schreiber and Michael Keaton, they're able to get the story running again. Um, but I remember being kind of resentful because by that point we'd been hearing horrible stories about what the priests were doing. And while, yes, 9-11 was a you know, horrible tragedy, you know, there were thousands and thousands and thousands of kids, if not more, all over the world going through horrible tragedies, ruining their lives. I don't know. How did you feel about how they handled 9-11? Again, I thought um, it, 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 what McCarthy did, and also his co-writer, I guess we have to give his co-writer, Josh Singer, the credit as well. I mean, it was just right. I mean, it, they, they gave a serious nod to uh, that historical interruption, the major historical interruption. And you saw in the newsroom some of the ambivalence about how to, how to manage resources vis-a-vis 9-11 and, 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 the, and the Catholic Church story. But um, I frankly can't remember who was most responsible for getting the Spotlight team back on to the, uh, the Archdiocese story um, sooner rather than, than, than later. Who, who was the driving force of that, Jess? Yeah, that's, <laughs> that's, that's a great question. Um, <laughs> from a moral outrage standpoint, it was definitely Mark Ruffalo. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. <laughs> um, and we'll get back to Ruffalo. We both love him. Uh, he's such a versatile actor. It's ridiculous. Um, uh, but, you know, he, he gives the only preachy speech in the movie – and it's late, and because it's understated, and and he's such a good actor, and he's flawed himself, but he's become kind of a crusader for the story. And it was about the vict. It was more about saving the victims than you know, you know, hanging the priests, you know, from yes. trees from trees or whatever. Um, it, it was just you know, you had to have one sort of self righteous moment, but it didn't come off as self righteous. But logistically. Uh, Keaton w- Keaton was turning screws, I think, with some with some of the lead editors. I, I think was the implication mm-hmm. because he was the one who to- who called Ruffalo when Ruffalo was in Florida. Remember? Yes. But they sent Ruffalo in Florida to investigate uh, the terrorists, I believe, who were trained in flying in Florida. Correct. And that's why he was there. Correct. And he got the call from Keaton and, uh, you know, I mean, there's very little humor in the movie. It's not humorless in the sense of being dull, but it's not a lot of jokiness, but, you know, the ongoing thing of, of Ruffalo, like just missing, you know, various windows to get documents and stuff like that was, Mm -hmm. was great. Mm -hmm. Um, and so, yeah, I think Keaton was turning the screws on the editor. I can't remember if it was the white haired guy that did it or who, but, you know, just like the movie, it was very subtle and all the logistics made sense. Yeah. And so, um, you know, it, 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 and that's the thing. I mean, obviously the main characters were all heroes, but there were people in the newsroom who were helping out in various other ways. And they found little subtle moments for, for that to be the case. But, you know, maybe we should sort of wind back to the beginning here. And as I mentioned, this happened way before, not way, but this happened a, f- a few years before I remember it happening. I didn't think it happened while I was in college in terms of the first major stories coming out in Boston, but indeed they were published in 02. You know, it's so it's such common knowledge at this point um, that it's hard to remember a time when people were ignorant or acting ignorant about it. So this comes out while I'm in college um, and stories continue to come out today. 
But when the movie starts, I, I can't remember. What was the initial? I mean, it, it's like Leave Schreiber. Okay, why, why don't you jump in on Leif Schreiber? You know, describe yes. his character, how he comes into the story, and how he fit into this whole thing. Because this, yeah. this is how the movie launches, is his arrival. All right. Let me also, you just used the H word about two minutes ago, hero. And I wanted to go back to, because you couldn't control yourself at the beginning. You had to bring the, the Martian into it, which was very, <laughs> very appropriate in my, in my opinion. Yeah. Because one of the things we most loved about the Martian was that the superhero in this non you know marvel movie in this non superhero movie right. was a scientist was a freaking botanist <laughs> right yeah. and you know and he he was he was a superhero and um and you see it in other movies like Apollo 13 if you remember when the mission control guys whip out their their slide rules and they're going to science the shit out out of the problem um and in this case, who, who are the superheroes? They're freaking newspaper writers uh, who who do good research. I mean, the, the the research in this thing is is awe-inspiring, and they're 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 heroic for me. And I'm a little bit biased on this because of who Lee Schreiber portrays, Marty Baron, um, who's the first Jewish editor in chief of the Boston Globe. Right. Uh, he's. He's the ultimate hero here. He, he rides into town knowing Bupkis about Boston, literally. I mean, he knows nothing about Boston. He's trying to get his, his feet wet and reading, reading a, a book about the Bambino and the, the history of Babe Ruth with the, with the Red Sox. Um, that's how he's trying to get his feet wet in Boston. All right, the Jewish, the uh, Jewish guy in Boston who doesn't like baseball, <laughs> right. as they say. Yeah. Right, right. It's so improbable. And he, he parachutes in, and he has these incredible journalistic instincts to jerk the spotlight team off of the story that they're, that they're um, focusing on, which I can't remember what it was. It's, but they, they do a fair amount of talking about it at the beginning, this story that they, they want to they wanna pursue. But here's this, this brand-new editor-in-chief coming up from Florida, and has the chutzpah, to tell this, uh, at that point, a 30-some-year-old team, because they've been in existence since the early 70s. Right. He has the chutzpah to tell them, no, there's something going on with this this pedophile story, and that's what I want you guys to refocus all your resources on. So, Lee Schreiber, the Jewish editor, for me, is a massive superhero. Absolutely. I wouldn't call him a you know more of a hero than the investigators. But he's he's responsible for the whole thing cuz they right. they you know Keaton was going to he he was going to fumble this ball again, I'm telling you. Which you know he he had fumbled it 20 years prior in in the 80s when when one of the lawyers, one of the good guy lawyers had had given him a list of of 20 priests that that got ignored. So I think if it hadn't been for Marty Barron, the editor-in-chief, I think Keaton could have possibly fumbled this story again. Oh, yeah. No, I mean, it, it was certainly heroic to... His vision was heroic. Right. His vision was heroic, but you still need soldiers. And, you know, it's like the Captain America thing again. You know, he's Captain America, 
and he's he's the one who inspires and he's the wisest and the most moral. Yes. But what makes one of the things that makes Cap Cap is his ability to get other people who do have good hearts but aren't motivated or don't have the right direction to get them to do the right thing, you know, and get invested and get motivated. You know, right. I mean, Keaton is an interesting case. It should be noted, as soon as McAdams and Ruffalo got a whiff of this, they were immediately like hound dogs on the trail. <laughs> right. You know, I mean, yeah. talk talk about soldiers. I mean, yeah. you know, yeah, you needed a Lee Schreiber um, uh, character, uh, Marty Baron, to get the ball rolling, but you needed a Ruffalo, you needed a McAdams. The other guy's name was Maddie Carroll, played by Brian Darcy James, who I'm not familiar with, although he looked, sim- uh, he looked familiar. Mm-hmm. Um, but you also needed Michael Keaton to get his ass in gear. And, oh, you yeah. Know- Keaton, Keaton was spectacular. Keaton's character, Robbie Robinson, Walt Robbie Robinson, was unbelievable. I mean, once he began to sink his teeth into this deal, I mean, he, he was all in – he took uh, Marty Baron's vision and, and ran with it, and he was not going to let the archdiocese uh, f around with him. It should be noted, as I'm looking at uh, RogerEbert.com here, which, by the way, is a real website with great reviews. Um, I'm a huge Ebert fan. A few people out there have listened to my, I think it was in my Serenity podcast. I, I likened my approach to Ebert's in terms of always trying to take a positive attitude towards movies. And if they suck, I'll rip them. But um, I always like that about Ebert. May he rest in peace. Great Thanks. website uh, with a lot of really good writers here. And uh, anyways, as they point out, and I forgot, where did uh, Lee Schreiber's character get even a whiff of this? from a column by a woman in the Boston Globe whose name I forget. It, it was an op-ed piece. And there's sort of a, you know, a, a moment of disbelief early on that he wanted to launch this entire investigation based on an op-ed piece. Now, it turns out that Marty Baron, uh, Lee Schreiber's character, had done some research on this before. Um, and, and sort of, I, I think, just sort of wanted to run with the tiny bit of momentum that the column created. Um, and it, w- what was great in the movie is that the investigatory um, process was a multi-directional um, process, meaning the victims, as well as the perpetrators, drove the, inv- the investigation forward and sideways at times as much as what the reporters were doing, if that makes sense. And I wanted to bridge to the important thing here, which are the victims of this. And to their credit, they tried to throw a red herring in early with um, the, like the, 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 the head of the main support group in Boston who had all the information, who was so pissed because they'd never run the story. It's something like Phil Slattery. Yeah, Phil Slattery. And, uh, you, know, you know, because he's so angry, you know, sometimes even victims can misremember things because that's what trauma does or become conspiracy theorists. Now, in the end, he ends up being totally right with all of his accusations and everything. And he becomes Phil becomes the uh, really the, the catalyst in a lot of different in a lot of different ways. Um, no, I was just uh, I have his last name wrong. His, his, his 
His name is Phil, and I'm. I'm just it's like Savino. It's something Italian. Yeah, 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 yeah. You're you're right. It's something more like like that. Right? Yeah, Savino, Phil. We'll just call him Phil. Yeah, call him Phil. Uh, like like Carlson. <laughs> <laughs> um, you made Phil really angry. Um, anyways, so yeah, so. Just to, just to wind it back, so Leif Schreiber comes in, a Jewish dude who used to work for the New York Times, I believe they said, yep. and then ended up in Miami as an editor, and then comes to Boston. Uh, they hint that there's going to be some anti-Semitism, but it's really not that it's it's really skin deep uh, in the movie. I mean, they make a couple people that don't like Schreiber take a couple shots at him. They don't really, you know, explore that angle. I have to imagine there was more than a little anti-Semitism in real life, but that's not what the movie was supposed to be about. So well, I think, you know, I think, I think this, this anti-Semitism thing goes along with your, your, um, your comment about the filmmaking style of McCarthy in that it was so spare. And I think that the way McCarthy and Singer wrote this, it's sort of like a, uh, an impressionistic painting, and they allowed you at times to fill in the text and the speech that, that wasn't spoken. And they were really, as you're suggesting, really uh, had a light touch with the anti-Semitism. But um, if you know anything about anti-Semitism and you're listening and, and watching these guys uh, you know, talk code, I mean, you, you can do the, the writing. And, and again, it's, it's, you can do the full the full. Bore writing, and it's to McCarthy's and Singer's credit that you know they they didn't go uh, all soap opera on the anti-Semitism, but it was it was there and and and, and pretty putrid. Absolutely, and uh, I mean, <laughs> he immediately arrives and barely settles in, and I think it was you go out to dinner with uh, with Robbie with Michael Keaton's character. Correct, and. Uh, you know, Robbie sort of pushes back on it a little bit, and we find out later that part of the reason he's pushing back is because, you know, he he failed to do this before, and also is connected with the Catholic hierarchy, as you pointed out. Yeah. And uh, Baron just says, "quote This strikes me as an essential story for a local paper." <laughs> <laughs> he's so so beautifully understated. I mean, uh, you know, Sch Schreiber can be at. At the other end of the spectrum, uh, like his his Ray Donovan character is over the top, and he he can pull that off. But this Marty Baron character is so understated, and and Lee does such a tremendous job with it. Just as a quick aside, because we both love Schreiber, and yeah. I don't watch it, but you watch Ray Donovan. Yeah. Um, can you just get, can you just give a, a you know a, a thirty second. Uh, description of his character in that movie, so that we could contrast it with this one. <laughs> oh my god! Or that well. Show. He's 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 the classic fixer. Um, I don't know if you saw that uh, George Clooney movie where George Clooney was was a fixer for a law firm. I couldn't follow it after twenty minutes, and yeah. so I stopped. It's it's I, I was I was totally entertained by by that movie. I thought it was great. I don't know is that the Michael Clayton movie? Yeah, um, I think that's Michael Michael Clayton. Yeah, yeah. So, um, uh, Lee Schreiber is that fixer character, uh, also for a law firm in, in Southern California. And I mean, he is just just this side of being a, a hitman with 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 a few few scruples. I mean, he's more like like a mobster than, than anything else. And he's he's just brutal and um, has double and triple lives. And you know, he's just couldn't be more different from the the Marty Baron character. 
just an interesting side note about Schreiber. Um, he happily embraces playing Jewish characters constantly. Oh, that's right. Now I know he doesn't in Ray Donovan, but he did. He was in um, Everything Is Illuminated. He was. Um, he was in the, the the Polish Resistance movie. Yeah, he was in Defiance. Defiance with, Dan- with Daniel Craig. Right. Uh, which is kind of an underrated movie, I think. I have oh, to yeah. watch that. It's yeah, really it's hard. It's pretty disturbing. But... It is. Very it, difficult. Yeah. Um, I, I believe they call him the Jewish Rambo, I think, is his, <laughs> his role in that movie. Right. Um, you know, I mean, he's been in superhero movies. He was the villain in the first Wolverine movie at Sabretooth. He actually, he and Hugh Jackman with the uh, facial hair in certain ways actually look quite similar. And that was the point in the Wolverine movie was that he's the, and this is from the comics, he, he's the dark Wolverine essentially. But um, but he morphs into these roles, but he, he, this, let's put it this way. This was a role that A, did not need to be Jewish. B, could have been Jewish without ever mentioning it in the movie, or C could have just you know gone a completely different way, changed this particular fact, or just not talked about it. But also, I mean, he represents some of the things that we love about sort of you know the Talmudic approach to life. Right. You mentioned he's sort of like a rabbi, but he doesn't look. I mean, he's not like David Crumholtz, right? I mean. Schreiber, you wouldn't necessarily think, um, is Jewish. And what I'm getting at here is he seems to like to play Jewish characters, even when it has almost nothing to do with the movie. Mm-hmm. And is it just because, you know, in the IMDb age, everyone knows that a guy named Lee Schreiber is Jewish, so they just cast him? Um, I don't know. I mean, what do you think? It's not like he's not getting offered roles, you know? Um, and. Yeah, I don't know. It's just something I was thinking about. Like, let's put it this way: you did not need to cast Lee Schreiber in in the role from a J- Jewish perspective, right? And and he and they kind of cast him against type uh, because he usually plays an intense guy, one, one way or the other. He's usually playing an intense type because he's he's got that he's you know got that Al Pacino kind of intensity and, and, and charisma about him. I think he's also a stage actor, right? I mean, he has a Shakespearean approach to acting, yeah. so I, I can't imagine he doesn't have um, have a lot of a, a lot of stage stuff going on. Uh, so yeah, so so I think you know I think an, an important subset of his roles have have been Jewish characters, but in Ray Donovan, for example, ironically, he's playing a Boston Irish gangster kind of a guy. That's crazy. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, you know, and then we'll move on to, to the, you know, quote-unquote main characters or more main characters. <laughs> I mean, in the beginning, it seems like Lee Shriver is going to have a ton of screen time, and he doesn't. Right. I mean, he's there at the beginning. He makes little small – and this is the thing. He He basically orders them to do the story. And they would resent it, except that the troops, especially McAdams and Ruffalo, really want to do the story. And they, and so Keaton goes along with it. He pretty much orders them to do it. And you think he's going to be like a dictatorial guy, a meddler, and he's not. Once but, the once the story is is going, and he sees that his his soldiers are are performing, he kind of lets them do their thing. But but remember that the John Slattery character, Ben Bradley Jr., the assistant managing editor. I mean, there there are moments when you can see him 
So you're you're hovering around this this nexus between um, uh, Marty Baron, the Marty Baron character, and uh, and Robbie Robinson, and the handoff. But what I wanted to call attention to was Ben Bradley Jr., who's the assistant managing editor, and how and I and I can't wait to to see it a second time to watch him as he's struggling. He's 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 looking for ways to shut this thing down. He's he's rattling in various ways. He's rattling Robbie Robinson's cage, Michael Keaton's cage, and I don't know if there's two instances of it or four. Or three or five, but um, it's a it's it's a very interesting piece of how the the story unfolds and all this Boston Catholic ambivalence about pursuing this story. Absolutely, and, but they they complexified it. You yeah. know, it's it's not just about covering up for the church; it's about their readership. You know, yes. I mean, it's the reason that. You know, Fox does the things that they do. Um, I'm not to compare the Boston Globe to Fox, but, you know, they do talk about that the Internet was cutting into their sales. Again, something I don't remember happening as early as 01, although it does make sense. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's amazing how how much was was launched around that time. Uh, But, yeah, back to what you were saying, yeah, it's more complex than just – we're covering up for the church in terms of within the editorial offices. Mm-hmm. You know, there are commercial things they had to, you know, consider and, and logistical things. And, and then 9-11 happened and whatever. Yeah, at least at least once somebody said, at least once somebody said, you know, our readers are not going to want to read about this story. Right, which is why it took that woman, whose name I can't find, uh, who wrote the op-ed piece, mm-hmm. You know, I mean, here's the thing. This movie says as much information as we get directly, it says even more, or at least as much, without saying it. Meaning, from a filmmaking perspective, Baron, Marty Baron, Lee Schreiber, so he reads this one op-ed article and says, we're going to work on this story, basically. Yeah. We have to assume he's been researching this well before he comes to Boston. You know, I think looking back, the fact that he was reading The Curse of the Bambino was a misdirect to make us think he didn't know what was really going on in Boston. No, I I, I don't agree with that. Okay. I just think that Marty Baron had an incredible – because he's a very seasoned newspaper executive. I mean, he's been around the block. Because, you know, you, you hear his, his resume at the beginning, uh, at least parts of his resume. He's been around the block uh, dozens of times. And so he has this incredible journalistic nose, I, I feel. And he just senses that this is where Spotlight ought, ought, ought to be shining the light. Oh, yeah. No, that's that. Uh, yeah, that, that, that's not what I was arguing. Or I was trying not I, wasn't what I was trying to argue. What, what I'm saying is he is a smart and extre- extremely well-read guy. Like, you don't come and you read one op-ed piece and say, okay, I'm shifting all of Spotlight to this. He must have, you know, I mean, he worked for the Times. I'm sure he had come across with these accusations over the years in, in articles here or there, hmm. including in New York and Florida, I would think. Um, you know, I mean, there's no shortage of Catholics in Miami, um, yeah. even though it's not the Irish Catholic Church. That's something I want to get back to later, by the way, is uh, 
is, uh, you know, how far does this go outside of the Irish Catholic Church, which for you know purposes of this movie in reality in Boston is the main, sort of the main force there. But I forgot. Did you remember that Baron met with the Cardinal at the very beginning? I totally forgot that. Oh yeah, I mean that's you were just talking a few minutes ago about how. Lee Schreiber doesn't have that many scenes in this movie, and it's absolutely true. Again, uh, McCarthy and Singer, the writers and director, you, use their prose and 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 the narrative. It, they 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 unfold it in very sparing ways. But there, but Schreiber does have some very key scenes. Yeah. Not a lot of them, but one of the you know maybe the the most the most chilling scene he has is with that son of a bitch uh, cardinal cardinal um, law. Bernard Law, yep. and it's chilling the way uh, Cardinal Law tries to co-opt Marty Baron, yeah, with you know the, the wink, wink, and the kind of the veiled threat, and you know he tries to seduce him, and then he tries to threat. You know, it's like it's chilling. I think, sorry to interrupt. I think you know remembering that scene now. You know, he's stunned at what Law's saying. Basically saying the globe should be working for the Catholic Church. Correct. He's stunned. He's stunned. But, you know, what's Aleve Shriver's dramatic performance? His eyes go wide and his eyebrows go up just slightly. That's basically the most emotion he shows. Exactly. In the whole movie, but it's so effective. It's amazing. It's so subtle. It's so subtle, just a little bit of a nonverbal stuff with his face that uh, lets you know, lets the viewer know that he's horrified by what this this douchebag just tried to propose. Um, but because he's a seasoned executive and seasoned leader, he handles this awful human being with incredible finesse. Yeah. And he just, just f- finessed him and, you know, didn't try to start World War Three with the guy, but he just kind of kind of just pushed it aside and left. So just really quickly about Schreiber, and then I want to get to some of the other characters. Mm -hmm. So I know you're technically retired, but uh, put on your psychologist hat really quick. Mm -hmm. What is Lee Schreiber's personality in this movie? Because he seems, you know, he's not married. He's always at at work. He doesn't seem to have friends. He's not, you know, he doesn't smile or emote much. Although he does have a calming presence, he feels very human uh, in sort of an old school way, I guess. I mean, he's not like sociopathic, obviously. He's the op- the opposite of that. But uh, is is he just a workaholic who who just that's he's just an obsessed, you know, obsessed with his mission? All right, so uh, I'm going to bring in a- another character to to help answer this question. Great, S- Stanley Tucci's character, the. Right. The, the lawyer on the white horse, Mitchell Gar- Garabedian. Stanley Tucci tells us, Mitchell Garabedian tells us, at some point in the movie, it's either midway or past midway, um, who he is as, as a human being. And he's, he says, you know, uh, he's not married. He's married to his work. I don't know if you remember that, 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 that soliloquy, but it was a great few lines of, of dialogue. Do, do you remember how he spoke? Yeah. Those? Was Stanley Tucci the good lawyer in the end? He's, he's the lawyer on the white horse. Okay. Well, right, right, right. Yeah. So, oh, yeah. Yeah. I, yeah, I do. I do remember. That's the thing. So much happens in the movie. It, we, <laughs> yeah. we need I a second viewing. Yeah. can't wait to see it a second time. So Stanley Tucci talks about, you know, who he is, that he's a, he's a driven crusader. 
Now he has a different personality style than Marty Baron. I mean, uh, you know, Stanley Tucci's character Garabini is effusive and he's all emotion and he's all over the place and he's charismatic and in his own funny, quirky, lawyerly way. But Marty Baron's the same guy. Um, he is married to his work. He has a higher calling. He's like a priest, you should pardon the expression, of journalism. He's married to the profession, and he's, he, he's celibate in his own way. And then he's just this, he's this, uh, as, as, as an executive, he's, he's a role model. I mean, just the way he handles himself, handles the staff, handles the resources, and his vision. I mean, he's, I mean that's just who he is. Well, and back to the Captain America thing. Mm -hmm. You know, one of my leadership qualities is inspiring without trying right. or, or with minimal trying. And this goes back to what I said about how, for dramatic reasons, they could have had much more Leif Schreiber in the movie, you know, hovering over their shoulders, telling him to do this, do that. Exactly. Nope. He just inspires with his you know, his notion of truth. That's the thing. I mean, he's a crusader for truth. Yes. I think as much as justice or any of those other values. Um, and uh, yeah. And, and it's an interesting thought as we wrap up the Schreiber talk. I mean, in both going forward, I'm going to conflate the movie with real life since I'm having trouble finding things that were wrong about the movie. Mm -hmm. Um, is it possible that they needed a Jewish or just non-Christian editor to make this happen? No, no, there's no way this, this was uh, not part, part of the, uh, the fact pattern. Uh, he was the first Jewish editor in chief at the Boston Globe period. And that was, uh, it was just fortuitous. It was just fate that this guy, you know, parachutes in this heroic um, priest of the truth parachutes in and get this, gets this story published yeah it's amazing and that's the thing with all the other greatness in terms of acting and filming you could have just cast anyone in that role just to get the ball rolling really i mean you could have easily had a, a b-level actor do that and it would have been enough you know but his it's three and a half total minutes on screen or whatever uh he did steal the movie and let's start bridging as to he was unable to steal the movie because the main characters were so fantastic um i thought i was a little surprised that michael keaton wait 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 oh. let, me, let me jump in before yeah. before we leave leave there's a yeah. uh, we, we uh, love leave this is right. the love leave fan club here there, there's a counter history thought experiment that, that you have to do here at, at this point okay. where, where, where we just were. Lay it on us. If he doesn't, if, if he doesn't come up as the new Jewish editor in chief, what are the odds that this story, when, when does this story emerge in Chicago or Boston or Buenos Aires or Dublin. I mean, when does it emerge? If I, have, he... I have a theory about this. Please. I would say about the time I graduated college, 2005, because, because of social media and because of blogging. I think some, some bloggers um, would have gotten onto this uh, and had an outlet. I mean, remember, Facebook was invented, I think, my junior or senior year. It was like 2004. YouTube hadn't been out much longer. 
Um, you know, there was MySpace and all this sort of stuff. But blogging had been a thing since the 90s, but it didn't really become a phenomenon until like the mid-2000s. But even so, the bloggers would have had to put enough pressure on the papers or whoever to to investigate it. Meaning, you know, as bureaucratic as the process was, and we'll get into, you know, the fact that they had to like photocopy documents and stuff like that. Um, you know, they moved really quickly because of their skill and their passion. So I, I think sometime from, yeah, in the mid-2000s, you would start to see that popping up on the internet. But who knows? Yeah. I mean, who freaking knows? I, I mean, if, if you look at how – let's go back to our uh, our friend Phil Saviano. That was his last name, Phil ah, Saviano. Do you, just a quick stop. Do you have the IMDB in front of you? I do. Okay. So will you be in charge of getting these names right? Yeah. Okay, thanks. All right, go ahead. So, you know, the way they demonized him – the way you know the uh, the community, the Catholic community demonized him. I think the the bloggers certainly in the early years of blogging would would have been demonized in the same way. It's so easy for the Catholic Church, with their extraordinary power and wealth, yeah, and and institutionalized corruption, both within within the institution itself, but also within its within its constituency, and that they they. That was another beautiful uh, part of, well, beautifully ugly part of the the story was how the Catholic constituency was part of the freaking cover up, was part of the conspiracy. Right. There was a Nazi reference at one point in the movie where they called them good Germans. Yes. Yes. Which is wow. wow. I mean, Very apt. Yeah. Well, yeah. It's it's related to the same so I am not hopeful if Marty Baron doesn't come up from Florida to take over the reins at the Boston Globe. I don't know when this story gets exposed in in what country and in what city and what country. I mean, I think if it was a miracle, if that team had remained together for a few more years and then all the blogging that I was talking about happens. I think it still happens, but maybe not in the same way. Well, I, I don't think so. But that's that's the, the, the counter-historical thought. I, I Just really quickly on the Jewish thing. Um, it's amazing. Forget the movie. Maybe I need to do more internet research. I tried to search for this. The Catholic Church never used you know, anti-Jewish sentiment or whatever. To co- I mean, of all the devious ways they tried to cover up and, and distort the truth, other than a couple borderline minor anti-Semitic things we heard in the film, mm-hmm. that would have been a pretty easy, uh, you know, kind of low-hanging fruit to serve to the working class that this Jew at the Boston Globe was ruining everything. Maybe that did happen. I don't know. I haven't seen it in any of the reviews or synopses or anything. But of course, his entire team, uh, other than Barron, was Catholic. So, from Ben Bradley, from the assistant managing editor, down through uh, uh, Robbie Robinson, the spotlight editor, to his journalistic uh, team, you know, they they were all Catholics. I'm looking up Sasha Pfeiffer to see if she's Jewish. I don't think so. You know what I think it is, Dad? I think Pfeiffer, if it has a P in front, is mm-hmm. not Jewish, and if it starts with an F, it is Jewish. I see. Well, you know, her her grandmother's Catholic, so. All right, so we could go out about Lee Schreiber all day. This is just hilarious because he's not even one of the main characters just from a screen uh, time perspective. Um, Michael Keaton 
can we save Keaton? Yes. Because I'm just so impressed with him the last couple of years, as you know. know. I know. As we both are. I know. So let's save Keaton, especially because although he's a critical character and has a decent amount of screen time, he's not one of our two main heroes or three main heroes in terms of, you know, who's, who's on screen. And for me, Rachel McAdams and Ruffalo made this movie with their understated but passionate performances. I'll let you pick where to start. I'm not surprised by Ruffalo at anything anymore in terms of his virtuosity. McAdams, I, I never thought was bad. You know, I love her from Wedding Crasher days onwards. I know you saw her True Detective. She's just, she has that great arc in her career where she started good and just keeps getting better. Um, and so I'll let you pick one of those two to, to get rolling on. Well, I think she's she's uh, less major than uh, her character is less major than Ruffalo. So let's let's talk about her first. Uh, you know, I, I'm uh, I'm like a minority of three, maybe. I, I love True Detectives. I watched it a second time a- after everybody trashed it because I didn't think it was trash worthy. You mean I'm sorry. You mean season two? Yes. Okay. Yes, yeah, season two. Okay. Um, and uh, by the way, random fact. Um, so, uh, Jessica Jones, shout out, uh, Mm -hmm. played by Kristen Ritter has a great younger version of herself. Uh, must be a teenage woman who's very, very cute and really a great actress who plays her in her flashbacks when she's just getting her powers and everything. Can't remember her name, but she's apparently in a bunch of the true detective episodes meant to run that bio. Um, she would. Be in her, she'd be like 16, light skin, very dark hair. Um, anyways, I'll probably cut that. I just meant to ask you about that because I was looking up her credits the other day. It doesn't ring a bell, but McAdams in, in True Detectives for me, I mean, she was she was spectacular. So, yeah, as you were saying, uh, you, you were a big fan of True Detective season two. I didn't even get through one. People seem to like season two, but less as it went along. You can talk about it if you want to a little bit, just in terms of McAdams. I don't even know what her character was in that. No, I just I just wanted to to highlight um, what an extraordinary actress or actor she's she's become. Uh, she was mesmerizing. Her, that is her troubled and and very flawed persona character in 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 the uh, second season. Uh, it was mesmerizing, and she was spectacular in it. In this, in Spotlight, I mean, uh, she's it's for me. It, it's a it's a pretty small role uh, when when you when you measure it against Ruffalo's role. So I, I disagree. I think they had equal screen time. I just think really? Ruffalo. I, uh, I just think Ruffalo is a force of nature. He steals, huh. you know, he steals every every everything he's in. Uh, they. There was a ton of montages where it was basically the two of them going back and forth and back and forth. She's with her grandmother. We see her with the husband. She was the one who got the priest to talk about how he was abused, and so he raped kids. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, I, I mean, it's possible she had slightly less screen time, but they were the main two characters as far as I could tell in terms of that. So, you know, I, <laughs> for me... I'll always have a soft spot in my heart for Rachel McAdams in her first major performance in Wedding Crashers, which is a completely goofy and hysterical movie. But she somehow manages to be a regular sweetheart that you just totally buy. 
Um, McAdams is one of those actresses. I think Natalie Portman is this way too. That when they're playing like cute, sweet, awkward, are actually playing themselves. Mm-hmm. And when they play other darker roles, are are reaching and usually get it because they're great actresses. But you know, you watch Natalie Portman play Girl Next Door, you'd never think it, but it's so natural. And McAdams is that way too. Yes. And you know, she's just so likable without being annoying. And I I liked her the contrast again, very subtle between uh, Ruffalo's slightly manic. It was sort of like infinitely polar bear, but toned down to like 10%, but he was manic uh, a little bit. And her calm strength, there was no real sexism against her, which I thought was interesting. I kept waiting for that to come. And, you know, she revealed a, a key piece of evidence, which they chose not to explore in the movie for some reason, which was she got a priest face to face to admit that he molested, had molested kids and he had been raped. And while he's smiling, it's so creepy. Mm-hmm. You don't know whether to feel bad or hate the guy or both. And, you know, but like everything with the movie, you just file that away as a piece of evidence. And that was in the final report that we never saw. You have to imagine. I mean, that's world building, right? That's what we call world building. That, that, that was the scene that didn't need to be done, because it, especially because it wasn't followed up on. But, is it, you know, we needed to see all the angles of what was going on with the church. And, you know, I mean, just just to sidebar for a, a bit, and we'll get back to Ruffalo, because we both agree that McAdams was great, there was a lot of elements to the conspiracy. But what I liked about it, and again, this reflects real life, was that the conspiracy was a conspiracy not because there was anything particularly complicated about the conspiracy, but just because of the acculturation and socialization over many, many decades and hundreds of years with the Catholic Church. And that's way more nefarious and scary. You know, it, it's one thing if, you know, if this person knew this thing and they're hiding it from that person. You know, now we're getting into all the president's men territory, right? Right, right, right. Um, And that's not what this movie was about. And it was just getting people to speak out and... You know, just to, to bring back in McAdams and Ruffalo, they were like therapists or, or, you know, at least confidants. They got these people to tell them, and I want to talk about this, they got the people to tell them really disgusting details about how they were molested. Mm-hmm. And again, this movie is so ungratuitous. It gives you just, because that's the thing, if you're going to take this movie seriously, you have to talk about the oral sex and the, the you know some of the the disgusting details you know they gave us just enough without going over the top and the fact that McAdams and Ruffalo they were pressuring the the their the victims a little bit but in their minds and in our minds I think it was for a good cause you know pressuring them to talk about it not judging them you know, I mean, that's hard to talk to people like that, even for therapists, you know, from a psychological standpoint, you know, I guess I would throw it to you, you know, what was it about, you know, these investigators, you know, or how they dealt with it or the victims were the victims just tired of nothing happening. And so they were being more bold than they normally would be. All right. So there's 
you, you, uh, you were just somewhere about two minutes ago that I, I have to, I ha before I answer this question, yeah. I, have to, I have to go back to, you were touching on what for me is the most stunning, if, if there's a word that's stunning times 10, I, I, I would like to use that word. What's so stunning about this story? And if you contrast it to um, all the president's, well, if you contrast it to the Watergate cover-up. Right. You know, the Watergate cover-up is there's a handful of, of Nixon's henchmen at, at the top uh, of, of the executive branch who drive this, this cover up. It's, you know, it's, I don't know, is it a dozen and a half people? Um, it's probably not even that, that many. Right. So, you, so you compare that to this worldwide cover up. And, you know, we have the crawl at the end, end of the film where they where they show pretty much every city around the world where, where, where this conspiracy has been exposed. And there's dozens and dozens and dozens and dozens and dozens of archdioceses around the world, right? You, you remember that crawl. Yep. So this is a global cover-up by probably not thousands of people, but tens of thousands of people. Right. How stunning is that? I mean, how do you, how do you wrap your, your brain around that in terms of the kind of corrupt moral culture, immoral culture that has to exist, that's that's deep within the culture of the Catholic Church, and I have to say within the institution and also within its cons certain elements of its constituency. Yep. To cover this global thing up in 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 hundreds of archdioceses, I mean, it's stunning. Yeah. And, and what? And, and wait. And what's what's being covered up? The torture, I'm going to use the word torture, not, not sexual abuse, because I think we're inured to this phrase, sexual abuse. The torture, the psychological and physical torture yep. of Catholic children. I mean, come on. Yep. How, how does that happen? Because as, you know, one of the common threads, as sick as it is, that we heard from a lot of the victims who are from bad families, parents died, bad neighborhoods, they would say various versions of, you know, when the priest took interest in you. It was like God taking interest in you. Yeah, but that's that's the that's the pedophile side of the story. It's not that difficult to to be be a pedophile as 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 we saw. You know, you go in, into poor communities where the children are needy and there's no father figures around and you know blah blah blah. They they explain they explain the psychology of that very nicely. But we're talking about the cover-up side. No, that's what I'm saying though. If you believe that to be true, then you literally are scared of God punishing you. I mean, that's the thing. I see. These people are true believers, or were. I'm not. I'm, I'm not. I'm not blaming the families uh, as much, although there's blame there. But I, I'm blaming these. No, no, no. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying for a massive conspiracy to work, you need the high level conspirators, and you. But you also need the mid and low level conspirators. You need people not to speak out. The numbers, you know, let's put it this way. The mathematical odds that anywhere from 100 to 250 priests were implicated in this eventually, the mathematical in, 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 odds for no one to say anything is in astounding. In Boston. Just in Boston. Just in Boston. But let's, let's take that times a couple hundred or, or a few hundred archdioceses. That's what I'm saying. The, the, the mathematical odds of no one speaking out. And that's, again, why I think this would have come out because – 
you know, even in so. even in '01, there wasn't enough internet outlets. You know, now you'd get like YouTube videos of it and stuff like that. You know, people confessing. If you, I don't even want to do that search, but I'm sure it's online of people talking on YouTube or, or podcasts or whatever about it happening. And, and that is why, to answer your question, you know, I, I think that as great as the Busted Globe people were, they got to it maybe five years before this story would have come out. But those five years were important. And, you know, back to your conspiracy thing, though, which is my bigger point, which is, so, you know, 9-11 truthers, yeah. Um, that think that you know Bush w- is behind 9/11. The thing is, from a moral standpoint, I could totally buy that. I just don't think logistically or in terms of his brains they could ever pull that off. That's the, you know as much as 9/11 stuff doesn't add up, that conspiracy would be impossible to hide. You know, and we see what's going on with the NSA and Snowden. What I'm getting at is the Catholic Church is even more unbreachable than the American security apparatus. Yeah. It's really unbelievable. It is. And, uh, yeah, it's, I mean, you know, I mean, it's impossible to estimate the, the damage that this has done to everyone about everything. And before we go on, I do want to say, you know, I mean, my family, we have tons of Catholic friends. They're all horrified by all of this. Luckily, or whatever, I don't personally know anyone who was involved on the victim side of this. I don't know if you do. You don't have to talk about it. But I will say that there was little, if any, criticism from the Catholic Church about this movie. And in fact, I read this to my dad earlier. But the Vatican has an official radio station called Vatican Radio. And do you mind if I read the quote? No. Because I think this is really important. So there's the, the, one of the, the, the spokesmen of the Vatican um, talked a lot about it. And then they posted the whole thing on the Vatican Radio website. And his name, Luca Pellegrini, said, quote, It was a group of professional journalists of the Daily Boston Globe that made themselves examples of their most pure vocation, that of finding the facts, verifying sources, and making themselves, for the good of the community and of the city, paladins of the need for justice. And I don't know, you know, whether, let's put it this way. If we still had, let's ignore the last pope because he was such a horrible Nazi, basically. So if we go back to was Pope John Paul, was that mm-hmm. the? Mm-hmm. So, okay, if so, Pope John Paul is in office right now. Do we get this response? Do we give any credit to the pope? And I mean, let's put it this way: if you're a Catholic bishop or cardinal, you can't go against the pope with this sort of thing. So if the pope's coming out and saying, not only are we okay with this, but we're going to praise the people behind both the, the, the journalism and the movie, this has got to be progress. I mean, right. Right. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to do some, some counterpoint to that okay. because sure. I, I'm not, I'm not convinced that the Catholic church has gotten religion pun intended yet. Two points. Bernard law still works at, at the Vatican, right? They, they, when they yanked him out of Boston in 2002, 2003, he got a big deal job at, at the Vatican and he still works there. Right. And, um, Another point is the current cardinal or archbishop. He, by uh, the way, he resigned in 2011, but go ahead. Oh, oh, he did? Yep. Okay. He was appointed by John Paul, and he then, but then he, he resigned in 2011. Unclear if it's related to the new priest, the new pope or whatever. Well, I, I, would, I guess I would assume that it probably was related to Francis, which would be great. 
which would be terrific. Well, it's possible. It, I don't think Francis was Pope in 2011, but it's no. possible just the continuing snowballing avalanche of the story finally just brought, yes. the, brought the pressure down, yeah. which is what yeah. I'm saying. I, I'm not. I'm not saying the Catholic Church on the inside, you know, is even three percent where they need to be. I'm just saying it's nice that we have a Pope who can actually cop to this and what they how they deal with it on the inside, bureaucratically, politically. I don't know how that works. You know, it's like 10 year times a thousand when you're a cardinal. Um, but, you know, you got to start somewhere. You got to start somewhere. I, I also read an interview, and I don't know if you sent it to me or whether I tripped across it with um, an interview with the archbishop, uh, the current archbishop of Boston, uh, an interview about this, this movie. And uh, I felt that his response was very kind of public relationsy, And um, he was talking about, oh, he, he was asked, I think, by the interviewer whether everyone in, in the hierarchy should be required to watch the, this movie. And he, um, he uh, what's that boxing term where you dodge? And I forget what the boxing term is. Do, do you know what that boxing term is? He said, well, you know, we have these great programs now uh, about, I suppose, he didn't, he didn't name them, but I suppose they're about sexual abuse and whatever. Okay. And... Uh, you know, he's like these world-class programs, these educational programs. Well, you know, I'm here to tell you that I, I've seen those programs, um, you know, like sexual harassment and sex discrimination in, in a corporate environment. And, you know, they're, they're token. I, I thought that he could have been a lot more embracing of this movie as, as, a, as a medium for conveying, you know, the you know, the emotional and psychological insights that are important. Yeah, people. see, I just, for me, real change is going to come from the parishioners and the people. And uh, <laughs> we don't have to mention any names, uh, but how do I put this? A healthcare professional that me and my dad both know well, whose kids go to Catholic school, has been very interesting every time I see her and talking about this particular issue and the kids are still in Catholic school, but the parents are keeping a very close eye on things. Yeah. And I think that's how this is going to change. And that's why this story broke earlier than it should have in a good way. But its legacy, you know, remember I talked about in The Martian that I thought the most important legacy of The Martian would that it'll be shown in schools? Yes. That's sort of what I'm getting at here. Yeah. That both the investigations and the news stories and, you know, access to the internet stuff and all that. Um, I think that, you know, Catholics are, you know, starting to look in the mirror. And uh, I, I, for me, that's where the change is going to come because you can't expect all these priests to change overnight. It's just not going to happen. Well, I mean, I know that's just, that's my concern. I mean, after, you know, witnessing this horrific conspiracy, you know, what, what's been the, the actual disruptive impact of the uncovering of, of the cover-up? I mean, you know, to what degree has stuff really changed in the institution and the, the hierarchy of, of that church? I think, uh, you know, we might as well just go social political at this point. You know, I mean, there there's organized crime elements to all this. You know, corruption in police stations and the lawmakers. I mean, yeah, as you pointed out, it's obvious this is a giant conspiracy. But for conspiracies to work, 
it doesn't it can't just be one institution especially in the globalized world and we saw that with let's talk really briefly about all the lawyers who you yeah. know some helped mostly did not help even the good lawyer you know took a while to help you know the 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 stereotype of the sleazy lawyer is not original to this movie but i felt that it was never and this will be one of the main themes i guess as we sort of head towards the end here which is that it's ne- it was never emotionally manipulative the movie it just presented the facts and even when we got the big speech from Mark Ruffalo, it didn't feel emotionally manipulative. And what I'm saying by that is the lawyers were shown to be sleazebags based on what they were saying and doing, not because, you know, they, they made a mustache twirling villains or whatever. Well, look, at they're, they're, let's talk about the lawyers. There were three of them uh, in, in the movie. There was the, the Stanley Tucci lawyer on the white horse, Mitchell Garabedian. Notice the last name. He's an Armenian and not a Catholic and mm-hmm. not a Bostonian. And he, he was the good guy. He was the maverick lawyer, um, one-man firm, not from a fancy white shoe law firm. And it took that kind of a maverick. And he got, you know, he got pressure from all over the place. But he, he, he hung in there and, and, and uh, did everything he could for these poor families that were willing to acknowledge what happened to their their children and, and, and come forth. And then there were the other two lawyers, the two bad guys. Both were from white shoe law firms. That was the, the Billy Crudup character, Eric McLeish, you know, with all his, his fancy suits and, yeah. you know, yeah, he's great. Uh, and, and fancy talk. He was great. And he, he was one of the cover-up lawyers. Dozens and dozens and dozens of cases that he defended uh, for the archdiocese and for which he got paid a lot of money. And then there was the even bigger villain until the end, the Jim Sullivan lawyer, who was played by uh, Jamie Sheridan, who was the vice president during whatever season of, of Homeland or season. Was he in two seasons or one, Jess? The vice president was in both seasons and was disposed of late in season two by Brody and, okay. and one of the most difficult to believe, but yeah. <laughs> but still well-executed scenarios ever. Right, right. He's great, by the way. Yeah, he was great. Because because of how we knew him as the vice president in Homeland, that just his luck, you're going, oh, God, this guy's a total villain. He turns out to be a reluctant good guy. Uh, super reluctant good yeah, guy. Yeah, but still. Super reluctant. And, yeah, uh, but he was scared. He, my, they were all scared. Yeah, yeah Michael Keaton had to, had to pull out all stops to get this guy to to, to roll over on, on, on the archdiocese. But but both these bad guy lawyers are, I'm afraid, you know, they're Catholics. Yeah, and all part of this incredibly toxic conspiracy. It's it's unbelievable. I just yeah, it's unbelievable. Well, well and just to circle back to the Pope real quick, you know, I'm. <laughs> for example, you know, I I have a lot of friends who don't like Obama as much as I do. You know, I'm a big Obama guy, and my last resort defense, if they're not buying any of my points, are. Well, imagine if X, Y, or Z were president for the last seven years. Where do you think we'd be right now, right? And I think the same applies to the Pope. Is he doing everything possible to stamp this out? I don't know. But it's nice to have a Pope where he openly admits it, you know? I mean, I, I know that's not as fast and, and much progress as we want, but that is progress. Especially, wow. and that's that's the thing. I mean, th- this is the thing about the Catholic Church, if you're cool going religious studies uh, for a second here with me. Which is, 
what makes a Catholic church so scary and nefarious and, you know, just power hungry and, you know, slow moving and whatever is the fact that it is the only major world religion that is fully monolithic and institutionalized to the top and a direct link to God. I mean, you know, other Christian and Jewish and Muslim fundamentalists will claim connections to God, but none of them rule the entire religion. That's never happened in the history of Judaism 3,000 years ago when we were still in, in Canaan. Even then, it's in dispute. Islam was always fractured. I mean, the whole idea of Protestantism was breaking away from the church, right? I yeah. mean, we may not love everything about Protestants in this country, but the whole, I mean, in Martin Luther was a horrible, crazy anti-Semite, but the idea was they were sick of being under the church's authority. So if any major religion can make major changes rapidly, ironically, it's the Catholic Church. I'm not saying that's going to happen, but it, 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 you know, from just a straight logistical standpoint, behind the scenes, if the Pope wants to crack down on this quickly, he could, I, I think. Uh, I don't think so. I think he's, he's, a, he's a heroic guy um, and an incredible role model and sure. totally refreshing. Sure. Um, but the Catholic Church is about millennia of, of power in total absence of checks and balances. It's, it's the most centralized uh, system and institution there is. And uh, I just think... Well, that's what I'm saying. It is centralized. Yeah, I, I, I know. And that's why... It, and it's, I don't think he, he can purge it. No, he's the center. That's, that, you just made my point for me. It, it, let's put it this way. If he's really just a figurehead, then you can ignore everything I just said. But if it is truly centralized and monolithic, and he is the vicar of God, right, or the vicar of Christ, then he could, with a wave of the hand, make this not go away, but go in a different direction because of how much power and influence he has. No one can question him. You know, he's I don't think he has. I don't think he has the power to reach down into the parishes. You know, the thousands of parishes around the world. Well, then that would be an interesting revelation. And I need to get a Catholic expert on about, you know, how maybe it is really decentralized and just appears to be centralized. It's just this this millennia uh, old culture that I just I just don't see how how he and his his relative. I don't think he's going to be around that long and his relatively short reign. I I just don't see how he can how he's going to change this culture. But we'll. We'll see. I, I still I still fear for, for these Catholic children. Well, let's put it this way. A thousand years ago, with almost no communication or transportation, the Pope was able to get every major European country involved almost immediately in uh, crusades that spanned centuries. And he was able to get, you know, I mean, <laughs> this Pope, Pope Francis can just call up the Bishop of, Canterbury or whatever, and you know, back then, you know, to to get to the the English, I mean, think about how far England is from Italy, you know, and yet England was one of the major players. Richard the Lionheart, one of the major players in the Crusades. So okay. if they could do it then with no communication technology. I don't know why they can't do it now. I'm not saying they will. It, it is an interesting question. So um, before we give our final thoughts for the movie, I, I really want to talk about what I teased in the beginning, which is what made this movie great, which is the procedural aspect of it. Yes. And now, 
I tend not to like procedurals on television, as you know. Yes, right, you don't. But the reason for that is because of the mystery of the week thing. If it's serialized like Homeland, mm-hmm. or as you'll see with Jessica Jones, yep. and I'm starting... By the way, I'm making headway with Daredevil. I'm, I, he and Rosario have great chemistry, my God. Yeah, they do. She's so fantastic. Um, anyways... If they're serialized, um, like True Detective was, right? I mean, I didn't watch correct. it. Yeah, correct. Yeah, okay. So correct. if it's serialized, I get into it. But if it's a movie, I know I'm getting a resolution one way or the other yep. by the end of the movie. And what this reminded me of in the very right from the beginning was a <laughs> sort of uh, a happier scenario version of the final season of The Wire where Gus, you know who I'm talking about. Yep. Gus, who's a, a light-skinned black dude from yep. from Baltimore, from the hood, um, you know, very charismatic, but also a truth teller, gets him in a lot of trouble, is trying to really do a story about corruption in the city. We had seen four seasons in the wire of, of the corruption, but this was the first time we saw the newspaper. And the, this season was the weakest for a lot of reasons, but it didn't have to do with Gus. He single-handedly held that story together. And like with The Wire, you know, all apparent victories during the course of the season end up being failures because of, of the system. And Gus ultimately was on to the truth and was overridden by editors who didn't want the truth. And this is, again, to connect the Martian. I mean, you know, the Boston Globe isn't a utopia, but they let this happen, right? Well, because of the editor-in-chief. Yeah, but he was the editor-in-chief, but he's not the owner. And we, we know that the owner was... Do we see the owner? They mentioned the owners. I don't recall. I think they're owned by the Times, and that's part of why he was there. Correct. They, they were at that time. They had just been bought by the Times. Right. Right. So, right. so you'd think the Times would be more permissive. That would have been an interesting angle, too. Right. But, um, but anyway, just to be more specific, you know, there was something about the flow of this one. Now... You know, if I have two minor complaints about the movie, and both of them are overridden by just how great it was, the first was, and I said this to you, I don't think during the movie, maybe right after, I would have gone a little bit more dynamic with the camera stuff, especially when they were having debates and arguments in the newsroom. I would have gotten up close, shaken it around a little bit, but as I said at the beginning of the podcast, they specifically were not going for that aesthetic, so that's fine. The other one is there's a lot of montages, and the thing is, in a journalism uh, procedural, you need montages because it's just not that interesting to see them write notes over and over and over again, you know, and you have them interview, do the full interview on camera with the key witnesses or victims or whatever, and then the music plays and they're running around and they're taking notes. But it totally worked for me because they probably did it three times during the movie, but it was always much different parts of the plot. So I guess the question after all that to ask you is, you know, what did they use your, uh, your, your film, put your film cap on for a sec. What, what was it about the way they shot this movie and edited it that, that made it feel just very authentic and, uh, almost like a documentary without it feeling like them trying to make a documentary. You know, that's a, that's a tough question. (laughs) It it was so perfectly executed from a directorial and uh, editorial editing perspective. I mean, they just, they just had a vision of what this film needed to be. And they, like I said, in the beginning, they, they seem to be allergic to, uh, 
soap opera-ing it up, Hollywooding it up, drama, you know, it up. They just didn't want to do that, and they they didn't want to uh, they didn't want to um, tarnish the story by being jazzy. So I think that's what led them to this this mockumentary kind of a kind of a style, understated, spare. I, I think that was it, it had to do with their their vision. They didn't want to tarnish the story by by looking like they wanted to do anything sensationalistic. And, and yeah, and, and to piggyback on that and to circle back to the wire real quick, which is arguably the best procedural ever, I think, whatever. Uh, but uh, they felt I think I said this to you during the movie. They felt to me like really, really skilled detectives more than journalists and I'm in the best way possible. I mean, the patience that they had, the restraint, the, you know, <laughs> bending little laws, but not wanting to break any real laws because they know that'll hurt the final, you know, uh, charges or whatever, mm -hmm. the way they dealt with people, the way that they did sort of see themselves as righteous warriors without being too self-righteous. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you felt that, Oh yeah, I think look look at I think that's who investigative journalists are. Yeah, you're um, right. it's it's very much like uh, detective work. Yeah. I mean, it's it's like it's almost identical, really, to detective work. Yeah, and in fact, if our society was functioning better, you'd have those two groups working together in a in a non compromising way. Yeah, you know, meaning you know, like the newspapers are more important because they dig up the truth on a large level. And then the cops would follow up with arrests and, and stuff like that, you, you would hope. And, and you know, to, to McCarthy's uh, credit and Josh Singer, the other writer's credit, I mean, they, they find a way to have us in awe over this nitty-gritty procedural grunt work that these guys do, you know, with the, with the Catholic uh, archdiocese directories that they're combing through and the library work. I mean, it's just heroic. And uh, they do a beautiful job, the, the director and the writer, of conveying this to us. What a what a um, what an awesome profession it, it is. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> photocopying documents has never been so gripping before. Exactly. When you were talking about flaws of the film, I was going to say, kind of tongue in cheek, half at least tongue in cheek. That for me, the only flaw the movie has is the title. I hate the title. Because who the hell knows what spotlight means until you see the freaking movie? And from a marketing perspective, I think it's a dreadful title. And I, I, I just wonder whether that has anything to do with, with luring people in, into the theater to, to see it. That's interesting. Yeah, it's a, it's a terrible title. Hmm. But that was the name of their group. I know, but who, who the hell knows? I mean, it's not all the president's men <laughs> in yeah. terms of titles. But that's the – I think the, that's the idea is if you sexy it up with like, you know, so it, it, that's not what the movie's about. I'm not going to disagree with you that there couldn't have been a better title. I don't think it's a terrible title. It's a terrible title. Um, what, what would you – Spotlight. I mean – uh, All right, Mr. Brenner, what would, you, uh, what would you call it? I don't know. I haven't thought about it. But you got to get something to lure, lure people in. I mean – most people aren't us. They're they're not reading, you know, the movie reviews in in the Enquirer or whatever. Yeah, that's what. Um, but it's not a wide release film. That's the thing. So you're saying it it won't be? Not that I can see. I mean, it's been on wow. less than a thousand screens. Wow. Made twelve million dollars. I saw uh, that. Well, this this will get 
this will get uh, Oscar buzz and uh, ho- hopefully sure. uh, I, I, I think they'll, they'll make money on this film. It's, it's, it's too good. Yeah, I, I think they want to make Academy Awards with this film. That's I think they care more about that if they lose a few million bucks. Not yeah. really, not really a huge deal. Um, mm-hmm. You know, it won at Venice. It's won at all the big ones already. So you know, yeah. I, I think it's a good a good chance. A real good chance. It's a good chance. Um, all right. Cool. All right. Well, thanks for coming back. That was great. Uh, what a, a great movie to talk about. I mean, just thanks. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. Uh, it was a great movie. Go out and see it. If you made it this long, you've probably seen the movie already. Um, I'll definitely uh, uh, probably wait till it comes out on on, on on demand, but for sure we'll watch it again. Um, great cast: Ruffalo, Keaton, McAdams, Leave Schreiber. Really, just uh, yeah. It, 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 that's the thing. I mean, just really quick. I mean, <laughs> gotta give props to the casting uh, department. A great, great ensemble cast. I mean, you couldn't, you couldn't do better. Yeah. So, um, awesome. Well, thanks to the Papa Bizzle. Uh, You're welcome. Thank you. And uh, we will be seeing you soon, hopefully.